0: Well, good morning church. Good morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and please turn with me to the epistle of 2nd Timothy. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and we will be looking at verses 16 and 17. 2nd Timothy chapter 3 looking at verses 16 and 17. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers and the flower fades But the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before our great God in prayer. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this day. Lord, please encourage the saints, bring back those who are backsliding, Lord, and save all that are yours. Lord, we thank you that we have no boast in ourselves, but we boast in Christ alone. As Paul left all of his boasts aside, he had none. They were as, as rubble, as dung in his, in his, in his face. They, 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 were, they were nothing. So we boast in Christ alone. And we look to you, great God. Use the preacher. Get yourself much glory. Please edify your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Placed on the top shelf in my study sits my great-grandfather's Bible. And the curious thing about my great-grandfather was that he was illiterate, so he could not read or write. He was a sharecropper from Arkansas. He was unable to read his Bible, so every single page of the text was a mystery to him. Many people in the church today, not just King's Church, but in in the greater church, in Christendom, have the ability to read yet simply choose not to read. We, we even have audio Bibles today. I mean, how blessed are we in this age? We live in a culture where there are many distractions, as you well know. But what's more important than reading God's Word? Reading from Fox's Book of Martyrs, and I quote, on October 6th, 1536, In the town of Vilverde in the Netherlands, William Tyndale, God's first translator of the New Testament into English, was brought to a place of execution, tied to a stake, strangled by the hangman to the point of death, and then burned in fire for doing God's work. As he met the Lord, Tyndale cried with a loud voice, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. How far have we fallen? At an evangelical church meeting in the past, I once heard a person say that all you need to do in regards to faith is to just believe. Just believe. Almost as if our Bibles are make-believe Disney stories. Just believe. Similar to the Nike slogan, just do it. See, if we have zeal without knowledge, we may quickly find ourselves in heretical territory or simply repeating things other men and women promote that are not biblical. So what is so important about this book written over a period of 1,500 years by around 40 authors written in three different continents in three different languages? What was so important to Martin Luther John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, William Tyndale, and so many others. The Bible is God's Word. We must search it, dissect it, and ingest it. We must feed on God's Word because without it, again, we will often find ourselves drifting into sin and error. We as Christians, believe that the Bible is Verbum Dei, which translated from Latin into English means God's Word. There are many natural things that we can understand, like gravity and mathematics. And likewise, true faith should not be a blind faith. Can you, my brother and my sister, Provide a defense for the validity of the Word of God? Or do we gravitate to circular argumentation when speaking to a non-believer? A simple example of circular argumentation is: I believe the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible told me so. I don't know how that's going to work for a Hindu or Muslim. A true Christian can be honest and genuine in saying, The Bible told me so because the Holy Spirit has regenerated them. But we must strive to provide a sound, apologetic defense when called upon. Additionally, we do honor God when we seek to know his word and the historical evidence supporting its credibility. So now please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will begin in verse 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, In this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what do we see? Paul is telling the Corinthian church that if Christ has not been raised, If He is not their Savior, then their faith is worthless, and they're actually blaspheming God. Many professing Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God. From Reformed folks to progressives, from Pentecostals to Lutherans, most professing Christians believe the Bible is God's Word. But not all agree that the Bible is fully sufficient for the Christian walk. This morning, we will review why we can specifically trust the New Testament and also briefly cover why the Apocrypha is accepted by the Roman Church today. If you're unfamiliar with the term Apocrypha, it refers to the books contained in the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Bibles but these books are not contained in our Bible, in the Protestant translations. We will also review the three attributes of New Testament canon. So we must begin with the meaning of the word canon. The word canon originates from the Greek kanon. It refers to a norm, ruler, or measuring device. The Oxford Dictionary defines canon as a general law, rule, principle, or criterion by which something is judged. End quote. When the word canon is used in a theological context, it refers to a group of compiled books that form the Bible or a testament of the Bible. Have you ever wondered why there are extra books in the Roman Catholic Bible and the Eastern Orthodox Bible? Many Protestants and maybe many of you here today, would argue that these books are not of God, but you cannot provide an explanation as to why they should be excluded. A Roman Catholic, which I was formerly I was raised Roman Catholic, if engaged in an argument with a Protestant, may simply say with a smile, "We gave you the Bible." The Roman Catholic Church believes that Scripture is the Word of God but they also believe that church history is authoritative. They believe that church tradition explains Scripture. I'm going to repeat that once more. The Roman Catholic Church does believe the Bible is the Word of God, but they also believe that church history is authoritative. They believe that church tradition explains Scripture Now let's explore the origins of the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a collection of books and writings that were written in the intertestamental period. That's between 400 B.C. and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. The intertestamental period refers to the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. This time is sometimes referred to as the 400 years of silence, According to DeadSeaScrolls.org, the term Apocrypha is used here to refer to the specific, specific collection of books considered to be canonical in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions, but not part of the Hebrew Bible or Protestant canon. Three works of the Apocrypha are found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, including Ben Sirah, the Book of Tobit and the epistle of Jeremiah, not to be confused with the book of Jeremiah, but the epistle of Jeremiah, end quote. Additionally, the Apocrypha includes extra, extra writings at the end of the book of Daniel. The books contained in the Apocrypha, though historical, are not accepted by Protestants as scripture. Many Christians, including myself, admire Luther, Edwards, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones and R.C. Sproul, but we do not accept their writings as Scripture. My family enjoys, on an occasion, Spurgeon's classic morning and evening devotional, and though sounded poetic, again, Spurgeon's writings are not authoritative. Though they can be very helpful, they are not to be embraced as the Word of God. We accept the Protestant Bible as truthful, We believe that it is the Word of God. Before the incarnation of Christ, the Apocrypha was embraced by Jews who resided in northern Africa and eventually Roman Catholics, including Augustine of Hippo, but it was never embraced by our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Jesus did not accept the Apocrypha. Jews living in Jerusalem never accepted the Apocrypha, But it was accepted by Jews living in northern Africa because the Jews living in that area accepted the LXX Septuagint. Hang with me, that's a big word. And the LXX Septuagint contained the Apocrypha. So the LXX Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament and was made so that Jews who did not speak in Hebrew in the original tongue they could read the Old Testament in Greek. This was done because Greek was the common language during the time, like English is today, during our modern times. Again, the Apocrypha was accepted as Scripture by the Egyptian Jews, but it was never accepted by the Palestinian Jews. In 382 AD, the Roman Catholic Church, under the authority of Pope Demasius gave Jerome the duty of translating the Bible into Latin. Jerome was a famous Roman Catholic theologian who eventually actually became secretary to the Pope. Jerome was required by the Roman Catholic Church to include the Apocrypha in the Roman Catholic Latin Vulgate. It is important to mention that the 16th century reformers, including the Lutherans and the Reformed, did not embrace the Apocrypha because Jesus and the apostles never acknowledged it as a part of canon. 1647 Westminster Confession of Faith refers to the Apocrypha in chapter 1, section 3. It reads, The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So again, they are historical, but they're not divine. In the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church affirmed that the Apocrypha was a part of Scripture at the Council of Trent. Protestants do not believe that church councils composed of men make writings become Scripture, We as Protestants believe that men recognized the biblical text as the word of God. To be more technical, Protestant believers embrace the New Testament canon as a fallible collection of infallible books. The Roman church believes that it is an infallible collection, because of the church and the papacy, infallible collection that does not err, of infallible books. Do you see the change? I'll repeat that again. Protestants believe that the New Testament canon is a fallible collection. Men are fallen. Men err. It's a fallible collection of infallible, of inspired books. Okay? The Roman church believes that it's an infallible collection of infallible books. So... How do we know today in our 2022 era that we, that folks in history included the right books in the New Testament? There are three tests provided by Dr. Michael Kruger in his series, The New Testament Canon. We can use these to identify which books should be included in the canon. Let's explore these tests now. Test number one. Apostolic origin. Apostolic refers to the apostles of Jesus. The first test requires that the New Testament text must have been written by an apostle or by a person who directly knew an apostle. That's right. Not all of the New Testament was written by the apostles. The gospel writer Mark wrote under the authority of the apostle Peter. And the gospel writer Luke wrote Luke and Acts under the authority of the Apostle Paul. James, who wrote the book of James, was the half-brother of Jesus and was the leader of the Jerusalem church, but he was not an apostle. Did you know that some of the apostles claimed authority in their writings? John is clearly writing authoritatively in Revelation 22, 18-19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in his holy city, which are described in this book. Peter refers to the writings of Paul as authoritative in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Reading verse 16 now. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Listen up, as they do the other scriptures. I must note that progressive scholars, actually, many pastors in America, believe that Peter did not write 2 Peter. They also do not believe that Moses wrote the first five books of our Bible. And they reject that Paul wrote under the power of the Holy Spirit when he penned Scripture containing to homosexuals and lesbians, as well as other writings about men and women's roles. The Apostle Paul directly identifies his teaching as authoritative in multiple areas of Scripture. Let's look there now. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Looking at verse 37, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, looking at verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now let's look at Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. Let's turn right in our Bibles a little bit. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, looking at verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now please direct your attention to First Thessalonians chapter 2. Moving farther right in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men. Listen up. But what it really is. What does he say? The word of God which is at work in you believers. And lastly, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his holy spirit to you. So we clearly see that Paul is claiming authority, apostolic authority in his writings. All of the New Testament books were written in the first century. All of the counterfeits or scriptural fakes were mostly written in the second century by members of the Gnostic or secret knowledge cults. Quote, unquote, Christian Gnostic heresy was widely made famous again in the book and movie The Da Vinci Code. Not sure if any of you have seen that. The basic teaching of Gnosticism, or Christian Gnosticism, is that God is spirit. And since God is spiritual, matter, or the physical world, is imperfect. Most Gnostics believe that God the Son could never come in the flesh since the physical world that we live in is imperfect. So they believe Jesus actually didn't have a physical body. And if he didn't have a physical body and he could not die on a cross. Please turn to the Apostle John's response to gnosticism in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 and 3. 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 and 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Church history informs us that the early church fathers accepted the majority of the books that we accept today, but they never accepted the counterfeits. The church fathers referred to the New Testament frequently. Actually, if we were to take all the writings of the New Testament fathers, excuse me, New Church fathers, and combine them into a single volume, we would have the entire New Testament. That's how much they quote, quote it Scripture. We'd have the entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses. That's incredible. Church councils were held to discuss books that should be accepted and rejected. The last meeting was in 397 AD at the Third Council of Carthage. Throughout church history, the church has been forced to respond to heretical ideologies that are buffeting biblical doctrine. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, and Athanasian creeds are clear examples of this. That's why we're a creedal church, right? These reminders, what do we believe in? The church eventually compiled a list of acknowledged books of Scripture to contend with the heretic Martian, not to get confused with a Martian. He's not from out of space. Okay, Martian, who made his collection of, own, of his own biblical books, excluding books of the Bible that clearly did not fit within his framework of his heretical teaching. So, right, the, the church had to respond with the list of their own. I must add... One of the reasons that I am a cessationist is that I believe we have a closed canon of Scripture. A cessationist is a person who does not believe that the supernatural sign gifts performed in the New Testament church are in existence today. If apostles still exist today, then Scripture would need to be continually written. Thus the Bible would be ever expanding until Christ's second coming. I believe in God's providence, that God is working all things for His glory and for the good of those that love Him. I believe that God the Son is sustaining all life, including you and me here today. I also believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, and I believe that God the Father is ordering all events of human history. But I do not believe that the signs and wonders of the New Testament church that were given directly to believers are still in operation today. Again, if apostles still exist, then we should record their writings in the Bible. Failure to do so would be limiting our church, as well as the greater church at large, from new revelation. I believe that this holy, inerrant word of God is fully sufficient. Sixty-six books, and it's pretty long. It's fully sufficient. Amen. Amen? Test number two, divine qualities. The Bible has many authors, but one true author, the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a spiritual book. Yes, I believe in a literal Garden of Eden, a literal fall, a literal flood, a literal parting of the Red Sea, a literal virgin birth, and a literal God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll, beginning, we'll be beginning at verse 12. Romans chapter 5. Beginning in verse 12. Therefore, For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Understand, friends, if you do not believe in a literal Adam and Eve, then you cannot be saved by Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners who were offspring, who were descendants of Adam and Eve. We believe in original sin and sin came into the world through Adam's first sin. And all people are descendants of the first couple. If there was not a literal fall, if there was not a literal first sin, then our Lord Jesus Christ would never be needed. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20 through 21 reads Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, man. but men spoke from God, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, this is what we began with this morning. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work there is one story one redemptive story in both the old and new testaments in Christ is the focal point jesus says in john 10:27 my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me This means that Christians will be able to determine God's Word. I've heard of stories where people were recently converted, right, newly converted, and they didn't know a lot about the Bible or about theology, but they spoke to Jehovah's Witnesses, and they said, something's just quite off. Because God's Spirit will lead you to the truth. Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will lead Christians away from error, And again, into the truth regarding the things of God. Some may say, wait a minute, that's circular reasoning. I respond by saying that we have to exercise faith in everything. You exercise faith in the restaurant chair that you sat in last night. Maybe the alarm that got you up this morning. And I think you exercise faith in our election system. That may or may not be debatable, but we constantly exercise faith. Scripture tells us that Scripture is God-breathed, and the writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, there is one divine author, 66 books, around 40 human authors, and it took about 1,500 years to complete it. Moses finished the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, around 1,440 B.C., though liberal theologians believe that it was written much later. The majority of scholars today do not believe that the Pentateuch was written until 600 B.C. I think you can do math. That's much later. I must add that some scholars believe that the Bible is not of divine origin and additionally that no supernatural events took place that are recorded in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah Pinned his book in 550 B.C., and the Minor Prophets completed their writings around 400 B.C. Then there was 400 years of silence. The Old Testament spans about 1,100 years, and the New Testament spans about 55 years. The test of divine quality is simple to comprehend. All Scripture must point to Christ. All Scripture must be God-glorifying. Scripture must not contradict Scripture. It is important that when reading Scripture, we must understand the writing style that's used. For example, the apocalyptic writing style used in the book of Revelation is vastly different from the statutory or law style used in the book of Leviticus. Gnostic Gospels, again, these are the counterfeits written by the secret knowledge cults. The Gnostic Gospels have a different focus than the biblical Gospels because they teach a different Gospel. It's a different Christ, different way of salvation. Thus, they are not God-glorifying. They can't be reconciled with the Old Testament text. There are many in our day and many in our seminaries, actually, that believed that Old Testament characters simply did not exist. They believe that they are parables to make a point or to teach a lesson. Parents, many of your kids may like Jordan Peterson. And while in, in the natural, I, I would agree with a lot of what he says in regards to faith, be very careful, he will lead you astray. Jesus did not debate the validity of Old Testament books, but he pointed to the Old Testament scriptures during his ministry. Some theologians believe that Jesus simply did not know that these books were historical. The problem with this is they fail to acknowledge that Jesus is truly God and truly man. If Jesus is indeed truly God and truly man, then his deity is all-knowing. If Christ's deity is not omniscient, if he he is not all-knowing, then Christ is not God the Son. That is so important to grasp. I will now point you to some areas of Scripture where Jesus referred to the Old Testament. Jesus referred to Abel as a historical figure in Luke. Luke chapter 11.51, I'll read it. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. A vast majority of scholars simply do not believe that Abel was a real person. If he was not a real person, then Jesus is not all-knowing, or he is a liar. And if he is a liar, he is not God, because it is not in God's nature to be untruthful. If you believe that Jesus is God, and you believe that the Bible is of a divine origin, then you must believe that Abel was a true person. Reading John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here, Jesus claims to be God by making a direct connection to the name of God revealed to the nation of Israel when they were about to depart from Egypt. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. Secondly, Jesus is claiming to be God because he claims that he existed prior to the birth of Abraham. Now let's look at Matthew 11. Moving back in our Bibles from Romans to Matthew 11, Matthew chapter 11. Looking at verse 23. Matthew chapter 11 and looking at verse 23. And this is where Jesus is referring to the town of Sodom. Matthew chapter 11, looking at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now let's look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we will begin in verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, excuse me, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here Jesus affirms that Moses is a real person. And in the narrative, what God has put together, let not man separate, that's a connection back to Adam and Eve as well. He's additionally defending heterosexual monogamous relationships. Now let's please look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, looking at verse 24. Mark chapter 12, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For as for the dead, and as for the dead being raised... Have you not read in the book of Moses, you see that, looking back to Moses, in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, Jesus believed that there was a literal burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, there's a real Abraham, and the God of Isaac, there's a real Isaac, and the God of Jacob, there's a real Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, looking at verse 24. Luke chapter 4, looking at verse 24. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to the woman who was a widow to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So we see Jesus believes in a literal Elijah and Elisha. We believe they were historical figures. If Jesus is God the Son, he cannot lie. And lastly, please turn to John. Chapter 5. John, chapter 5, looking at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is Jesus speaking. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you do not believe that the first five books of the Bible were writ- written by Moses, then friends, you clearly have an issue with Jesus. That's not controversial, that's just a fact. Jesus came to save sinners. And every human being, including myself, is a sinner. Turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus and submit and bow to His Word, the truth that is contained therein. Every word of it, God breathed. Jesus also said in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is a good and loving Savior. but He is also judge, jury, and executioner. Get right with him if you are not. Turn from your wrongdoing and live for Him. It's the beauty of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. Christ alone. Test number three. Corporate reception. There are 27 books in the, in the New Testament. But over 2,000 books were possible candidates for the New Testament selection. Can you believe that? That's only 1.4% of 2,000 possible books that made it into the New Testament canon. It's pretty profound. Only 1.4% of books. That number may seem alarming at first, but I'll explain. All of the books included in the New Testament were written in the first century. The Gnostic Gospels, which were the Gospel counterfeits, were mostly written in the second century. The majority of the Gnostic writings were written after the apostle's death, right? Apostolic authority has to take place for it to be in canon. Additionally, these books were viewed as counterfeits in the early church. Again, Gnostics believed that matter was imperfect, so their teaching directly contradicted the theology of the Old Testament because Gnostic teaching is clearly opposed to the Bible's focus on physical land or earth, right? Right? Many of the books contained in our New Testament were recognized as Scripture for many years by the church, and there was not one meeting or one secret church council that decided this. Two books, so you know, that were strongly considered but not included were First Clement and The Shepherd of Hermes. It is important to note that neither of these authors claimed apostolic authority. Again, that's key. There are a few books of our New Testament canon today that were debated. They include Jude, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, as well as Hebrews. The church widely accepted the majority of the books in our New Testament today. The New Testament books have authority not because they were compiled by man, but because they have apostolic origins and they were inspired by God. They are inspired by God. Today, we barely skimmed the surface of the noble study of the reliability of the New Testament. If you'd like to learn more, I'd be happy to share a few resources with you that I believe will aid you in your study. Feel free to see me after service or email our church. So what do we do today? How do we respond this morning on October 30th, 2020? By any chance, does anyone have a King James Bible with them? One King James Bible? New King James? Fair enough. If you do... Have a King James. You understand that you hold in your hands the Word of God, but it is also covered by the blood of the martyrs. Men, women, children, pregnant mothers, infants, unborn babies died so that you can hold the Bible in your hands today. to 80% of the KJV translation is of William Tyndale. Hung, burned, and blown up by gunpowder, this former Roman Catholic priest's crime was translating the Bible into English. His last words before going to heaven were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. On this Reformation Day, We don't need more talkers. We need more doers. We need more players, not more spectators. We need men and women operating in their God given callings to give Him glory and not to compromise. Have a backbone, dear Christian. If the government comes for your Bibles, if they come for our churches, if they come for our pastors, when they come to indoctrinate your children with unbiblical ideology, you need to act like Christians and stand boldly for Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. This election season, give God glory in the way that you vote. But you must remember that salvation does not come from the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Salvation does not come from talking heads, dear friends. It comes from the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been well said. Pastor, Pastor John says it from this pulpit quite often that the Reformation was a back-to-the-Bible movement. And we need a Reformation in our day. We need to get in the Bible and pray and conform our lives to what the Word of God says. Conform our families, our churches, and our society to the Word of God. Quoting Martin Luther, a flawed Christian, just like me and you, who was mightily used by our great God. He said on April 18th, 1521, when asked under the threat of death, about his writings and beliefs about salvation and the Roman Catholic Church's practices. Quoting Luther, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of god i cannot and i will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience may god help me amen and may god help you dear christian amen may you have the boldness of luther luther had boldness because he stood in the power of the holy spirit we're all weak this flesh is weak but when we are strong our great god when we are weak our great god is strong Brothers and sisters, children, your name may not be remembered in church history. It may not even be remembered by your great-great-grandchildren. You will likely never be a Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, or R.C. Sproul. But it is much better, much better Christian to know God and to be known by God versus being known by the masses. Everything will fade away. What do we say so often from this pulpit? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May God richly bless you as you reform your life and your family to the written word of God. Let's go before our God in prayer. Father, I pray that all that you desire to have done in every single heart here will take place. Father, let us be grounded in truth. Let us be rooted in your word. Let us delight in prayer. Let us love you. Father, I pray that as truth was proclaimed that the enemy in the world, the struggles of the world will not choke and snatch up the truth. Lord, I pray especially for the young people. Pour your grace upon them, your spirit upon them. May they stand boldly as they will have to stand more boldly than those who have gone before them. Let them be rooted in truth in your word and led by your great hand, almighty God. Pour your grace upon your people and get glory. In Jesus' name, amen.